We are here with two absolute legends, heroes of mine. We've combined forces. Peggy McCree was here with Dweezil Zappa, Paul Camerata, and myself three months ago now. Was it? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But we had such an amazing reaction, and everybody in the world loves you so much. So you were nice enough to drive all the way down here to come back for our guest of honor, Mr. David Z. Rivkin. How is everybody doing? Good. Good, thanks. Excellent. I don't know if you've seen any of these, but we're just documenting the studio. The I've people. seen a couple, yeah. Excellent. Great. I'm glad you're doing it. I know. It's just, you know, when Eddie Van Halen passed last year, it was like engineers, producers, musicians are all going away, and it's like these stories need to be told. And so are their stories, yeah. Documented. They're, they're all going in their own bedroom. Yes. <laughs> Well, the studio is celebrating 60 years this year. Yeah. And it's, you know, as both of you know, it's a father-son operation. There's just never been a name change, no corporations, no, you know, sponsors, anything. It's just two guys and a lot of music. You know, hopefully uh, the youth of today will watch, absorb, and be entertained. Uh, David. Yeah. We're both from Minneapolis. I was born there. Oh. So are you. Yes. Now, you taught yourself engineering i taught myself engineering i did not take any courses or anything i uh i actually was trapped in a, a studio in the hood for a long time i wanted to stay in music so i took a job as a assistant and i uh, i funneled groups from a booking agent that i knew to do demo tapes so he could play the tapes for the club owners and they'd know what they were booking. So wow. I thought it was a pretty cool idea at the time. I mean, there weren't that many people in music back then, but, um, uh, you know, me and Beethoven got along. <laughs> but that's that's how I started. And I, the, the guy that was the engineer owner decided to quit doing that, and he said, why don't you take over? And I went, I, I'm a guitar player. I never... Never yeah. thought I would be doing this. And he said, oh, you'll learn. He locked me in the room for a couple of years. And I read all these books, Robert Runstein, and how compressors worked and kind of experimented until, you know, I broke something and then I would back off. So that's kind of how I learned was uh, the law of mistakes. You, you, we started as a guitar player, right, in music? That was like the first instrument you learned, and then you came out here and yeah. were at A&M for I a was while. a guitar player, and then I was a songwriter, and um, I was actually a promotion man for radio, for A&M and Electra. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I was frustrated with what they were telling me to try and, and get played. I mean, some of it was great, but... Uh, some of it I, I didn't like that much. And um, my boss in Minneapolis said, why don't you just pack your car up and move to L.A.? And I did. I moved to L.A. and I um, I got signed as a songwriter to A&M. And that's how I started in the studio as a player and a singer. Incredible. How old are you then? I was 22. Whoa. And um, we're talking uh, 1969. Summer of Love Something era like kind of through there? Yeah. Did you feel like you had made it at that point? I no. Mean, you're in L.A.? And no, no. Just, it was frustrating uh, because 
Well, the publishing company, Irving Almo, they, I wanted to write songs for like, you know, Dusty Springfield and Aretha Franklin. And, you know, they had to do what they could do. And they wanted me to write a song for Three Dog Night. But that wasn't my style. Yeah. And um, it was fun, though. I got to play with some of the best musicians. And I got to play with Billy Preston. And uh, write, I wrote with Graham Parsons. Yeah. So uh, we've, uh, that was a good education. Did you write the track, How Much I Lie? Yeah. You wrote that? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I wrote the chorus for it. What year did Graham pass away? What's that? What year did he pass away? I don't know years. Seventies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When he passed away, I um, I realized that I was probably next, and I moved back to Minneapolis to to save my life. Are and we doing a lot of drugs and cocaine and yeah, everybody and everything? Was. We didn't know it was bad until people started dropping dead. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, we that's, took the fun out of it, didn't we? Yeah, it took the fun. <laughs> yeah, we. Had, I had the good part, and then. We realized that it'd kill you. So yeah. I moved back to straighten up and do something. I had a job in a metal factory at night, and I was really frustrated. And um, in order to get back into music, I started taking groups into the studio. It was a studio called ASI. They had uh, it was up in North Minneapolis, and. Um, it was very elementary. They didn't. They didn't even have tape counters. I don't know. You know, his the guy was a kind of a crook, and his theory was if you, if you rewind the tape until you hear the noise stop, then that's where you that's where you start the song. I mean, he had all these ways of wasting time, so he could make more money. And uh, I even thought of a book. Uh, Hundred ways to waste studio time. I think <laughs> it would be a bestseller with studio owners. So but, you teach yourself engineering, yeah. and then you're bringing groups into the studio yes. in North Minneapolis. Yeah, and you're engineering them. I'm and engineering. You're tracking them. And yeah, doing I made some of the worst recordings ever, <laughs> and uh, I just kept doing it and doing it. And my goal was to get three-dimensional recordings because that's what I was obsessed with. Because all the recordings sounded very shallow and, you know, amateurish in the beginning. Was your first job at Sunset Sound in a studio, or did you work any... Okay, so you came right here as a runner and then moved up, and... Okay, I didn't know if you... Because you went to that school in the Valley. Uh, what was it called? Sound... Sound Masters. Sound Masters. Yeah, that's for how what, you five weeks or something? <laughs> yeah, I learned here. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically, we're in the same boat. I learned by practical experience. Did they have a head engineer at that ASI? Is that what it was called? It was the owner, and he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Oh, nice. He was more comfortable swindling people in the front office. So I, I did get to do a lot of groups there, and since we were in North Minneapolis, I did a lot of R&B groups. As a matter of fact, that's when I first met Prince, um, this developer I know, Archie Gibbons, he brought in a group called Champagne. Yeah. And it was, no, it was Grand Central. Grand Central, I, yeah. yeah. It was Prince and Andre Simone and Morris Day, a, tri a trio. And um, I recorded them, and, you know, I don't think it was anything special. I can't remember what it was, but about a year later, Prince broke off from that group and... 
Time on, on for a minute. Magic. So they come in as Grand Central. Andre, you know, housed Prince when he got kicked out at 14 years old. What did they record? Was it like they a funk had song? songs? Yeah, they had songs they had written. I mean, for the life of me, I can't remember. I guess I would have if they would have been. But we were all amateur back then. It was yeah. just the beginning, the beginning of the sound of Minneapolis, and it was the beginning of professionalism in Minneapolis because there really weren't any records coming out of there that sold. I mean, there was the Trash Men with. Liar, liar, with a, uh, and there was, you know, the bird, yeah, and uh, everyone had had to leave to make it from there. I mean, Bob Dylan moved to New York. Uh, Willie Weeks, who was the great bass player, had to move here. Bobby Lyle had to move here. There was nobody could succeed out of there because there wasn't any business. There wasn't any organization. What was your brother Bobby Z doing? Bobby was playing and he would play the drums um, first with my brother Steve. He had a group. They had a group called the Jaguars, and um, uh, then Bobby played with various groups. I played in a country group with him. Nice. And uh, that was before you know he got drafted. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your brother Stephen is a fabulous film editor. He's doing really well. Yeah, I mean, really well. Spielberg he's, movies and what well, else? Well, he's working on Avatar two, three, and four right yeah. now. So I think he'll be busy for the rest of his life. <laughs> but you don't remember the vibe of the songs. Uh, Andre or uh, Morris is playing drums. Morris Prince is, is playing singing. drums. Andre was playing bass, and Prince played guitar. And then a couple tracks, they, they were doing a demo. Yeah, it was a demo, a couple tracks, uh, you know, and Archie was kind of a, a wealthy developer, and he brought them in. He, he was the one that spotted them. And, um, you know, it was uh, beginnings. Yeah. Was was, very, did you notice a Prince had just an amazing talent then? Not at that time, Okay. No. How long was it till he came back in and did the demo It was a himself? year later that... Um, Owen Husney took advantage of, he took over Prince's management and brought him to me. Yeah. I was at a different studio at the, after that. and um, A better one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had, they had counters on the tape machine. <laughs> what was the Minneapolis sound at the time? There was no Minneapolis sound at the time. It was um, shallow recordings and it was drifting around. Nobody, there was no sound. I mean... Bob Dylan was the closest thing to. Wow. It was folk blues, is what it was. And it Kernery and Glover and Bob Dylan, and uh, it was the folk blues. Uh, that was what was big back there. And it's still considered a contributing factor to all the R&B that came out of there. So Prince comes back in and. Did he request you, or did you know uh, you knew his manager? I don't know what happened, but I was probably the one of the only engineers that knew the street and knew what was going on, and I wasn't doing television commercials like everybody else, um, which that's that's all they did. Yeah, that but, was so much work in here. I mean, there was three sessions a day. Was there three sessions in the eighties when you were here? Two. Oh, yeah. It went down yeah. to two. Yeah, you don't well, get a no, lot. It was, it was a double session, so it was a, a daytime and a, and a night. 
Viagra. Yeah, commercials are, uh, they're heartless. I mean, you gotta crack the whip and anybody makes a mistake, you just keep going. And uh, it's all charted out, you know, I mean, they're nice commercials, but they're so, not soulful. So didn't he, Prince, he does this demo, and do you remember what the song was? Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. it was, he, he had all these new songs written that were great. And he had recorded every part on this little hand cassette machine. Yeah. And he recorded, he hummed the piano part, and then he hummed the drum beat, and then he hummed the guitar part. And we'd go around the room, and every, before he started the drums, he'd listen to the drum part. Same thing with the piano, same thing with the bass. And he had planned it out, uh, and he was able to execute it all himself, which is really rare to be that objective over your own playing and not sound like it's one guy. He didn't, didn't sound like it was one guy. It was, he managed to put different personalities on different instruments. And that was what I thought was so amazing about him, is that he could just pick up anything and, uh, yeah. and he didn't have to talk to anybody. It was no. all in his head. And he just, you know, he was all by himself. He loved that, so. Yeah, I mean, he got so comfortable with uh, recording that he did a lot of it himself eventually yeah with uh, peggy teaching him how to do a lot of things himself yeah he tortured a lot of people too but. <laughs> why did um so he why did he split with grand central do they want because he wanted to do his own thing yeah and uh, you know i was friends with andre during that whole time and andre wanted to break off and do his own thing everyone wanted to do their own thing at the time and you know, Prince Prince, through Owen and my cousin Cliff, got got a chance at Warner Brothers, because uh, Cliff was the promotion man for Warner Brothers, and they took the tape to Russ Dyrat there, and he flipped out. He couldn't believe it was one guy, and uh, so they they flew us out here, and they're in the studio. I, I think it was. Was that wooden studio of Warner Brothers in the Valley? I forgot. Amigo. The name. Yeah, that's where they went. Amigo. What? Amigo. Yeah, Amigo. Right. Yeah. And uh, they had uh, Lenny Lenny uh, Warnaker Warnaker there, and Gary Katz, and um, Ted Templeman. They had all, all their famous producers came yeah. into the room wow. to, to see if Prince could actually do it himself. And we started working, and he got 90% done with one song. And you were there, too? Yeah. So yeah. you flew out from Minneapolis. Yeah. Because uh, in Prince's request? Well, I was that, I was his guy. Yeah, you were doing his stuff back in Minneapolis, yeah. and he said, come out with me, I'm going to go do this right. work. And Yeah, I never you. worked for him. I just worked along with him. Yeah. Which is great, because I... I didn't have to get the calls at four in the morning, <laughs> like Peggy did. No, I didn't work for him either. I worked for the studio. So oh, that's right. So they you, would call me. You he weren't on his yeah. payroll, but the, yeah, he was, wasn't on his payroll. Yeah, Susan was though. Susan was. She was. Yeah, he could be very hard on people, and especially you know when he had the eye of Soren that oh, he yeah. he'd focus on some person that he didn't think was doing a job, and he'd let him have it. I, I had one day like that. Yeah. Well, one day you're... Yeah, only one. That's only good. one where he really focused and, uh, yeah, yeah, he was riding me all day long. It was rough. 
when the tape got lost or whatever? Yeah, and it wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with me. That's what was so irritating. David lost it, didn't he, or something? Oh, I don't know who lost it. Okay. I don't know who he lost it. He was a it. very tough boss. I mean, I didn't, I didn't come under his wrath at all. So I'm luckily a witness to that. But I've seen him when he assistant engineers, especially, oh, yeah. he'd come down on him and say, "What are you doing?" And they had to explain themselves. And, you know, it was almost like they were sweating and shaking. And He liked that, too. Yeah, he liked that. He'd, <laughs> he'd like to keep people under his thumb. You know, I'm from Chicago, and um, Michael Jordan was gigantic when I was growing up in the 90s. But he was the same way. He was so hard on his teammates, demanded so much, would ridicule them, ride them so hard. But he demanded greatness from everybody. Do you think that's kind of what his attitude was, or who, was he just kind of venting out on people? No, he wasn't just venting. He was trying to. It was a control thing. Yeah, he, he was knew what was to best. Control people that you, you know, keep them under your influence. I mean, don't tell them things. Let them guess, and that he used to treat his band that way. You come out to Amigo with him, with the new manager. Everybody at Warner Brothers is excited. You guys go on Amigo. He plays every single instrument. Yeah. He's a phenom. They had already signed him at that point? They had already signed him, but they were trying to figure out who was going to produce him. That's what they had all those oh, wow. guys in there. And I think every one of them thought they were going to do it. And um, you know, I think Lenny suggested the guy from Earth, Wind, and Fire, Maurice. Yeah. And Prince just went, nope. I don't make me black. I don't want to be a black artist, because he he did he was rev, it was a revolution. He was changing music, and he wasn't the OJ's, and he wasn't all the prevalent R and B artists. It was a different groove. He invented his own licks, his own grooves that didn't imitate anybody else. I mean, he found his own sound by experimenting like that, and he didn't want to copy anybody. He yeah. wouldn't. He refu if somebody suggested doing a lick that he thought was on some other. No, he wouldn't do it. He would say that's the competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you guys go in Amigo, and then do you guys cut for you there? Uh, no. You worked on that record, right? Yeah, I did. He cut the tracks at Armin Steiner's place, and then we went to. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe he cut some of the tracks at Amigo. But did you engineer that whole album? No, I did not have anything to do with it. Oh, wow. They, I wasn't known. I didn't have a, a reputation at all. So. And Warner Brothers was, you know. They pushed you right out. <laughs> they wanted some guarantee because they didn't want to give Prince and his guys all the control. They needed a guarantee if they're going to spend that money. Yeah. And um, I, when I was signed to A&M as a writer, I had Tommy Vicari was one of the staff engineers, and um, he recorded some of my demos, and that's the only guy I could think of, him and Robert Apera, that was it. And uh, I, I suggested Tommy, and, and Lenny went, yeah, sure, I mean, because he's got credit. Wow. I mean, Prince probably would have been discovered, but look how pivotal you were in bringing him to Warner Brothers, doing the initial yeah. demos. I mean... Yeah, I mean, we were trying to bring up the level of Minneapolis music, and he was the likely subject to, to do it. 
what was he what did he like i mean did he ever give you like a reference track like you know if i produce something or film something it's you know i love a reference track because it gives me an idea how to light something or how to make uh, something sound did he say ever come in like oh i love the snare on this or i love no he didn't get that involved he didn't care about any no. of that no he just played he just went ahead and played if he made a mistake he said i was meant to do that and then he kept going did he ever say like i like that song or uh rarely communicative rarely. <laughs> did he communicate with more with you because he knew you longer What's that? Did he communicate with you because yeah. he knew you longer? Oh, yeah, he wouldn't shut up sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I and I'm looking at him going, people are not going to believe this, but, you know, he he's yelling and jumping on the couch, and I'm looking around, and I'm the only one in there. <laughs> and uh, But that was after a while, you know, he got loose. But, no, he was he was very communicative, very talkable, talkative, and... Um, you know, we talked about what we wanted to do and wanted to break a lot of rules. That was a discussion we had many times. We just said, you know, if we could put guitars underwater, we'd do that to see how it sounds. And it was all in theory. We were discussing that stuff, but uh, we tried stuff like that. Yeah. Not underwater, but, um, <laughs> you know, similar. He was always trying stuff. I mean, he was always hooked yeah. that up. It's like, okay. Right. I mean, he played the bass on the organ pedals on uh, Erotic City, which I thought was the coolest thing. Yeah. Nobody oh. does that. So what year is this then? Like 77, 78 kind of for the For You album? I don't, don't ask me in about there. years. Yeah. Yeah. Years are gone years. with me. Yeah. So For You doesn't do that well, though. They didn't market no, it correctly. It was, uh, it was a tank. It was an overproduction. He even admitted it. He said, I sang too many voices on there. You know, he was given free reign, so he wanted to express himself, and after not being able to afford to do that, he just played everything and everything and anything, threw the kitchen sink into it. Um, and, yeah, he hadn't really developed his sound yet. Where was he living out here? Was he? Did he have a permanent uh, residence then? Or yeah, was he, he. We rented a house in uh, in the valley, in the mountains, and um, you were living with him too for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I was back and forth. Just you two, or no? Owen Husney was with us. All three of you guys are renting a house for at least. Yeah, you're there for a couple months. Wow. In the valley, huh? And I think Andre came to stay, and Owen's wife at the time came to. Stay involved and um yeah you guys wake up and have uh, cinnamon toast crunch together every morning and <laughs> <laughs> morning coffee hey he prince didn't eat. <laughs> did he eat with you uh i think so Just i mean we bit. ordered out i don't i don't remember cooking anything <laughs> but during that first album we uh prince oh, we, we, we mixed it we went to the record plant in san francisco and sandy um uh, Sausalito. Sausalito. And we worked there. That's where we recorded most of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we did childish things. We went to a fancy restaurant one night, and I brought a little midget squirt gun. <laughs> and, you know, Prince was a kid. He just liked to do kid stuff. And I lift up the... Uh, 
squirt up in the air and put it back down. And the people four tables over would go like that. And we'd just laugh. And then he did it. I mean, this is a different day and age. This was... Um, what year was did Funky Town come out to completely it switch was channels? Okay, we recorded in '79. That I remember. Yeah, I mean that went Funky Town went number one in every single country. Did you know that? No. Monster one hit wonder, but yeah, monster it was a real song shock. It was a real shock. Did that just take off and you're like, holy cow? <laughs> yeah, because you had never had success like, like that. It was like the last disco song ever. Yeah. I have so many fan questions about <clears throat> everything about that track, but I was just trying to place when that was in the Prince period. You guys go do, were you involved with Prince, the album, after For You? No, I didn't have anything to do with that. Okay, so those first two albums, he was with Warner Brothers, and they're telling him who to work with. Yeah, Prince did the second album himself, I think. Do you know where that was done at? Was that record plan also? Hollywood No, that was at Ray Parker Jr.'s house. Yep. Well, and that's that. what um, Warner Brothers wanted Ray Parker to yeah. check Produce it out. Him. And he said, he's fine. Let him go. So wow. Yeah, that's when he did I Want to Be Your Lover. And that at least got him up the charts a little bit. Yeah. And um, Was he dating a lot of girls then? Was he dating a lot of girls? Well, I mean, he was <laughs> known for having a ton of women coming around here. I didn't know if he was so dedicated and music and he was just oh, waking yeah. up playing uh, songs I, writing you know he never really showed anyone any special attention yeah he was on a mission he was on he, a mission yeah where do you think that drive comes from in people like i don't know he doesn't then never slept very rarely and is, only was driven by music compulsory just completely completely uh, you know if you're obsessed, alive playing music obsessed yeah and you got to be obsessed to be a successful star. And he was. Yeah, he was. Dirty Minds up next. Is he checking in with you at this time? Yeah. Uh, Dirty Mind, he pretty much did himself, too. Yeah. And uh, that's when he started developing his sound. Uh, his funk grooves and the little licks he played that were only special to him. And the Oberheim horns. The OV8, that uh, that was the sig, and I think that's the first time he used the Lin, the Lindrum. Yep. And that he was trying to develop his sound. I mean, we talked about personality and sounds, and how the snare drum can define an artist. If you even hear the first bar, you go, "I know who that is," just because the sound of the snare. I've, I practice that too. You know that Lindrum was the guy that invented it. It's like right by where you live now, um, North Hollywood. That's where he came up with it. Oh, really? That. Yeah, Roger. Roger Lynn, Yeah. Yes. And obviously, both of you told me that he would start off with the Lindrum when he would come in the studio. Sometimes. It, now, it acoustic depends. drums sometimes too. It just depended. It you know. Yeah, he had. He played real drums on some things. He played real drums. Sometimes he would start with a piano. Sometimes you know, usually drums and a piano. What an amazing piano player too. We have oh, some tapes here of him just sitting there for hours. 
Yeah, I don't know when he ever practiced, but he never. That's the yeah. He practiced everything. He must have because he was really good at everything. Back in Minneapolis, do you remember where he they rehearsed at? Was it at Andre's house? What are you talking about? When they in Minneapolis before they came in the studio, like where would Grand Central practice? Did he have a piano Probably at the house? Andre's house. I don't know. Yeah. When you guys lived in the valley, did he have a piano there? No. So yeah, he was. Well, just... his dad played piano, so he played piano as a young child, I think. That's right. That's the, there's that great story from here. There was a famous tack piano in this room that Brian Wilson did good vibrations on. The Doors played on, and then fast forward to the '80s, Prince came and asked Paul Camerata if he could have that piano to give to his father. It was an Aww. upright tack piano. He said, "You know, I really like this piano." It was just sitting in the hallway back there, but he loved it, and Paul gave it to him, and he gave it to his dad, and oh, they shipped cool. it back. And yeah, just a phenom. So then we move into controversy, and did you catch the tail end of that, Peggy? Yeah, that was Hollywood Sound. He was at a board went down. Everyone knows the story. He shows up here. Yeah. David, what are you working on then in Minneapolis? Are um, you still engineering I was records? I was working on another lip sync record to follow up Fun- Funky Town and a bunch of other things. Yeah. There's um Lamont Cranston, was that around mm-hmm. that time? Yeah, Lamont Cranston. I was doing a um radio broadcast every Friday for the FM station there. Wow. And th- we'd have pretty big touring groups come through and put on a concert every Friday night. It would be broadcast over the radio. Where at? First Avenue? No, it, we did it in the studio. Oh, okay. At ASI. Gotcha. And um, it, th- that was fun. I mean, I got to re- work with a lot of people that were huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ben Sidron and people came through that were Michael. Yeah, I mean, there was just there was a lot of touring groups. What was the console that they had in ASI? <laughs> well, if you want to call it a console, it was a home-built board, and there was no, I couldn't tell what anything was, but it was, you know, EQ and Sense, and um, it was pretty elemental. Is that studio still there? No. Is the no, bulldozed I, or gone, something else now? Yeah, it's gone. At Starbucks, they plowed that whole block under and rebuilt it. Peggy, uh, obviously, Prince comes in here, and you guys do a little overdubs on controversy, overdubs and mix. I think he wrote a couple here, I can't remember though. And he wouldn't talk to you, um, well, he didn't, he just kind of mumbled, you know, and and um, I think he, he was shy. When yeah. I knew him, you know, and um, he was he 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 liked to be comfortable in his situation. I don't think he was comfortable when he first got here. He'd been working at Hollywood Sound, and so um, yeah. I just remembered the name of a Lamont Cranston song I love. It's called "Darker Side," and then Johnny yeah. Lang covered right. it. Yes, that's such a great track. The piano yeah. on that. Who played yeah. piano on that? Bruce McCabe, the guy that wrote it. Wow. Do you know that song? Mm. I don't even know if you can find it on like Apple Music. If you look up Johnny Lang, Darker Side, he did a cover of it in like the late 90s. Yeah, it was on his first album. Yep. A Lie to Me. 
Um, that's such a great track. You engineered a whole album for them, right? I yeah, I engineered it, produced it, and I wrote that song. So wow, kind of have a stake in it. Did you get points on uh, Funky Town? No, that was before anybody knew what points were. <laughs> yeah, they didn't get points to engineers. <laughs> yeah, I was. Well, you kind of ghost produced it too, though. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, let's go after them. Uh, <laughs> Water under the bridge. That's what everybody does nowadays. They go after him. So, obviously, then Peggy takes over. I was so surprised to learn that you and Peggy had never, ever worked together. It's funny. We never met each other because I was back there and you were out here. Yeah, and it was weird because he didn't didn't merge the... We didn't collaborate at all. No. You know? And it was like... The only time you were here was when you were working on Maserati and we were in Studio 3... And right. you were in studio too, and that was the only time that you know I ever even saw David. David yeah. Z was like, Who's David yeah, Z? I was always sent on some other mission. When you're tracking Maserati, are you just come flying out then for weeks at a time and yeah, I staying uh, with Prince. I talked to Prince and he said, "Come on, I'm out here for the weekend, and uh, I want you to hear something." Okay packed my shirt and my pants and came out and he goes uh well you're gonna be here for about a month because we're doing (laughs) you're doing Maserati I went okay well I went and bought clothes and you call that communicative (laughs) were you like okay yeah yeah some good money that that was a job it was great and he produced them yeah I still I still want to hear the story of I know my version of how he took Kiss. I want to hear your version. Because that was Maserati's, right? Yeah, that was originally for Maserati. And who, did Prince write it? Prince wrote, uh, yeah, he, he gave me a demo of him just playing block chords and singing the verse in one chorus. And that was it. And we sat up all night going, how do we make this funky? Yeah. And you did. And, yeah, I guess we did. And all I remember is him going over and listening to it, and then all of a sudden it was his song. Yeah. <laughs> it was his song. But yeah, it was his song, technically, but yeah. the groove was It was great. <laughs> or me. So he's in Studio 2 with Maserati, David Z, and you're in Studio 3 with Prince. working on 1999? No, 1999 was in 2. I, no, I don't know what we were Oh, that's right. It was the parade. Okay, so it would have been later then. Yeah. It was after Purple Rain and all of that. Wow. Um, So he obviously thought a lot of you to, you know, he's out here in L.A., the capital of entertainment, studios, the record labels, and he wants to bring his old engineer that started with him out here to do a record for him. Yeah, well, I'm grateful. It's great. And I I think it was... uh, it was compounded by the fact that he didn't like other people that he didn't know. He wouldn't right. want talk to people he didn't know. Yeah. And he didn't want to get to make the effort of trying to know somebody that he didn't know. So I'm lucky I was there. Could you answer a question, Nate, who you met out in the uh, traffic office? He has to know. <laughs> he said, please ask David Z a step-by-step process of gating the guitar with a hi-hat on Prince's Kiss. And did he get... Produ- production credit for Parade. <laughs> well, you can production credit, give it to the machine. <laughs> yeah, it, the step-by-step process was really, 
uh, we, when we were programming, I was programming the Lin drum, and I had a hi-hat part, and I ran it through a uh, digital uh, delay unit, and I kept, I printed the track, and I kept shifting back and forth from the output to the input to, and making a rhythm out of it. Because it was just going and I made it go and did a, a rhythm and then just played block chords on an acoustic guitar just the a and major. gated it to that rhythm. And the gate opens up only when it's triggered, so the hi-hat triggered the gate to open and you could really tighten up on it, so it caught all those little rhythms. Uh, and I went, God, nobody can play that. <laughs> it's a machine. You can't reproduce it they live. Have, well, I know for years the Revolution and everybody else had a lot of trouble playing that rhythm because, <laughs> you know, they thought it was a pattern. It wasn't a pattern. It was random. Yeah. And they couldn't, you know, do it until they realized that there was no pattern. <laughs> uh, Matt Fink finally got it down. But... Uh, I, we have to know something. This is so important for the studio. So obviously we have the Purple Rain Gold record. He tracks that with you live at First Avenue. Yeah. He comes up with the movie here, gets in touch with the director, tells Morris we're going back to Minneapolis to make a film. When did he call you and say, hey, I'm coming to make my first motion picture? Well, the concert was... It was a benefit for a dance company that the choreography, the choreographer for the group and for time, yeah. they were running out of money and Prince wanted to do a benefit to give her some money. And he called me to record the concert because it was the first time that Wendy had played, played with the group and Mark Brown. So yeah. it, was, um, it was all new songs except for a couple. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal. I, Prince was a regional artist, so he, he had a lot of people come to see him. And uh, we decided to call the record plant truck because that was the one I read about at the time. It was Cooster McAllister and David Hewitt. They were together in this black truck that they had. And they both came and... Um, uh, I loved that truck. It was the same API board you got in three. The <laughs> Not video. the same one, but uh, it was still, it was something to do. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what it was for. Nobody, you know, he didn't, he didn't tell me if it was for an album or for just the concert or what. And uh, we recorded that concert and three of the songs on Purple Rain came from that concert. They were the they were the impetus for the the album. What three tracks were they, Peggy? Depending yeah, he wound up using "I Would Die for You" and "Baby I'm a Star" and "Purple Rain." And "Purple Rain." Those were all from that concert. Okay, "Purple Rain," "I Would Die for You," and "Baby I'm a Star." And "Baby I'm a Star." Well, and let's go crazy, David Leonard. recorded yeah, in the warehouse. That. Yeah, I didn't do "Let's Go Crazy." Yeah, he did it in the warehouse. Right. Live. So David, he was taking people from here going back to oh, yeah. Minneapolis yeah. and bringing Susan out here, and you're going this way, and it was just this big. Susan said he had 85 people on that tour, and he was, you know, he was 
did a lot of great things for his his group, his employees. Hey. Everyone got their own hotel room. Um, the philanthropy he would do, you know, he would only do it on the condition there would be no press there. Um, obviously, he did the Purple Rain concert to benefit the choreographer. Yeah. So you just get the call that we're doing a concert, come record it, get a great truck, and yeah. here we are. Yeah. And is that the first time you heard Purple Rain? Yeah. It's the first time he played it. Yeah, wow. It's the Holy first shit. time he played it. No one ever heard it before, and the audience was stood. I heard the piano line. Here. Well, besides her. Yeah. Because he was working on he it here. He was working on it here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, I mean, it was completely different, obviously, just a solo acoustic piano. Yeah. But I mean, I just remember the line, and he he said, I'm going to make a movie. And it's like, okay, and off he went, you know. So then he brings the tracks back here. Um, I mean, I, we got to find I think they out. added strings. Yeah, we added strings, like and I think midnight. he replaced the bass with one that was plugged in directly because, from what amazing. I remember, there was a first wireless bass, and uh, it didn't deliver full frequency. So I'm kind of think he might have done that. Not sure. Those so, how such, those sessions were so crazy. That he needed more tracks, so we had to bring in another machine. You know, two twenty-four tracks, and that was that Simpty. And yeah, it was is pretty crazy. You know how tolerant he was of yeah. of technology too. It's like if it didn't work, it just pissed him off. So yeah, it was pretty wild. Was so Susan's at the Kiowa house, and did she come out too then? Susan came out on Purple Rain. The end of Purple Rain is what I remember. You know. But, um, what would you guys, I mean, you got two engineers in the studio then. Where she wasn't an engineer. She was a tech. She was the okay. maintenance guy, and that's what she was hired for. And it wasn't until later at his house that he, you know, said set up the studio, and she said, who's engineering? And he said, you are. And so she <laughs> sat down. I mean, that's just the way it went, you know? Yep. So that's the first time she engineered. She was just there to keep the equipment going and. And she moved back there to, you know, do that for his studio. Yep. So Let's Go Crazy is tracked at the warehouse. Some of the songs were done at uh, Record Plant in New York also, correct? Uh, or worked on there. I'm not sure. I didn't work on that. Yeah. So. I just, do you know anything about that? Because some of the three studios are credited. The warehouse, Record Plant, and Sunset Sound. Well, wouldn't Record Plant be the, the truck? I guess that would get the credit then. Record Plant would get for the truck. I don't know. His credits were always um, weird. Were confusing because he would uh, give credit to people that didn't do anything, and then he would not give credit to people that did major parts of song. I, it's like it's a guessing game. Yeah. I mean, my credit on Purple Rain was so confusing. He, he <laughs> said, "And I'd like to thank three Davids," and then he didn't say anything else after that. He meant David Leonard and me and David Tickle, and that was, he just, wow. that was it. He just said, thank you to three Davids. He wanted you to guess. Yeah. So, I mean, that was cool. Your brother, though, you're working with him then. Mm -hmm. Were you guys close? Yeah. So he shows up with your brother back at Minneapolis, and it's kind of yeah, like a well, homecoming thing. And My brother was uh, the first manager, Owen Husney. My brother worked for him. 
Oh, wow. He was a runner, and uh, he used to, you know, be a runner. And he'd drive Prince around. That was part of his job in the beginning, and they became friends. And I suppose it drifted into jamming, and that's how Bobby became his drummer. What was your relationship like with the Revolution and Bobby Z? And I didn't. I, that those are Prince's is, troops. They would come out here. But I, he never introduced me. I mean, I knew Wendy and Lisa because they lived here, and they were down and Jill, you know, because they they lived here. Yeah. And so they would be at the studio more. But once in a while, you know, Matt and Bobby would come into town, and I had no idea what for. But it wasn't like he merged us. It was really kind of bizarre. He kept the he kept the Minneapolis people separate from the L.A. people, except for Wendy and Lisa. And them. Yeah. What's your brother up to now? My brother? Yeah. Uh, he works for uh, a record distributor in um, in Minneapolis. He's back in Minneapolis. And he still has part of the studio there. Peggy, do you remember how much of Purple Rain was used from the live? How much was overdubbed? Not at all? It was such a crazy time. That was when, after 1999, he went, he just exploded. And then that's when... The bodyguards came in, and there were just people everywhere. It was really, it's tough. That yeah. was a really tough session to try to manage. That's that album. Like Darling Nikki was the reason Tipper Gore put parental advisory on. Uh, that's the song that uh, uh, Al Gore's wife, yeah, Tipper, hated right. Tipper, and made everybody put stickers on their the record. <laughs> And what was so funny is he wasn't like that, you know? I, I mean, know. He, he could write about it, but he wasn't like that. No, he wasn't. He wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't like in the studio that, I mean, some of the things you would listen to and go, huh, that's pretty suggestive, but he wasn't like that. So it was it was interesting. Yeah, it's uh, shocking that he he could sing about stuff like that. When he was back in Minneapolis, was there a studio... Uh, in the 80s that he would come home and track at? Was ASI still there? No. Uh, he usually tracked at his, he had, at his warehouse, I think. Okay. And, or it, he had a studio in his house, too. Yeah. Well, and that was the board that David and I designed, too, for his house. So you and David Leonard designed it. Didn't he want it to be like the Domitio API in 3? Yeah. I mean, he wanted a Domitio board, and he wanted us to design a board for his house and we knew what he liked and what he you know those boards are pretty straightforward and uh, what he didn't use and we met with Frank Demidio and designed him a board and we got to get Brian Kehoe who you know is like begging me to get Frank Demidio in here he's pretty old still I mean if he can make the trek down. he was great he was great that was a nice room in his house yeah beautiful and just think, I mean, he could he could just do it. He could play all night long. That's yeah. what he loved to do. I mean, he told me he went home so I could sleep. That was the only reason he ever went home. Yeah. He would have lived here. So. Did he ever say anything to you about Sunset Sound that he really liked the room? I mean, obviously he spent, you know, I don't know if he came out and said it, but we, I mean, he, it was our place we went. I yeah. mean, this was it. Studio 3. 
He did. What did he do in Studio Two then? Obviously, uh, nineteen ninety nine and some of the time stuff we did in. Well, and also Little um, Red Corvette was done in two. No, that was done in Minneapolis. It was the yeah. two hits off that record were yeah. done in Minneapolis. Okay, and that that was probably was it you or Don that did that? I think it was Don that I did it in his yeah. in his home studio, and then we did Vanity Six, and then it turned into Apollonia Six, and then we did two time albums over there too so you and david did apollonia six right yeah i think so <laughs> peggy i know i'm sorry <laughs> david always he dropped in and worked on stuff you know um it was too much for one person oh it yeah. really was and um there were times i needed help yeah and david you know david and i were dating at the time so i would ask him to come help me and he would drop in and do something and you know I don't want Prince fans to get mad at me, but do you think that he was harder on Peggy because she was female? I don't know. I can't. I don't know. I I think it was probably a way of, uh, I don't want to say flirting, but, I mean, you know, kind of toying kind of thing. I don't want to, because it wasn't flirting. That's what it, that wasn't what it was. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, everyone, obviously, like we've been saying, he was a genius. He demanded a lot. Did that enhance your ability as an engineer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, when I was finding other groups to work with, uh, I told the record company, if I can work with Prince, I can work with anybody. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think anybody else is as hard on everybody as... Or demanded um, speed like he did. I mean, you had to do it quick. Yeah. And that's what that's what I realized that you know I came from the '80s when it was there was huge budgets and it was huge three days excess. On a kick drum. Yeah, three days on a snare sound, and then they would change. It. It's like really. And with him, you had five minutes to get a drum sound. Yeah. And you better get it quick. And, you know, or you were blowing the groove. And so some of that stuff that I cut, I wasn't really, technically I wasn't real proud of. But, you know, you didn't have time. Yeah. And if, if there was another take, then you could change something. But you better not touch even an EQ, just a, yeah, right. even just a click of an EQ he could hear. And he would get so pissed. Yeah. So, I mean, the only thing you could do was kind of ease down if it was, you know, pinning. You could ease it down, but you better not touch anything. So yeah, he didn't. He wanted it just the way he could hear it in his headphones. <laughs> yeah, he put uh, his his front of house engineers through hell. Yeah, because I remember one story. He had a, he had to get a new front of house engineer from uh, Claire Brothers, and uh, they were rehearsing at Paisley Park. This is much later. And I had, let's say the guy's name was Joel, I think it was. But Prince set up all the board and everything across this huge soundstage. <clears throat> and in the, the guy just walked in and he said, don't touch anything. I got it all set up. Joel said, okay. And they, Prince went back and started playing with the band. They were rehearsing. And Joel turned a little something and Prince stops the band. Yeah. And he says over the mic, Joel phone call <laughs> and and Joel has to walk all the way down to the front desk and say there's a phone call and the secretary said no there's no phone call 
Oh my god! And he walks back, <laughs> and the band's playing. And he, after a while, turns a little knob, and he stops the band, and said, "Joel, phone yeah, call." Yeah. And then Joel had he got it, <laughs> he got it. Wow! It's like, don't That's touch awesome. anything. Yeah, you could not touch anything. Yeah, and it was it was brutal because that's what you did. You yeah. know, it was like. But I thought that was, was that just fun. astonishing though. For I mean, from seeing him in Grand Central at ASI North Minneapolis, a young kid, and then you watching him get the Warner Brothers deal to Purple Rain stardom. I mean, that was just, it had to be pretty amazing just to witness that kind of uh, It was growth. amazing to watch his development. Did you know his, it was going to happen? His confidence level and um, everything else. He, he grew right in front of my eyes. It was a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, he did grow in front of your yeah. eyes. And that's what, when I went to see him at, at the forum, it was, he had matured so musically, he had matured, and he played with people as opposed to just yeah. you know him himself and i i just i just thought he was finally maturing and playing with best, great one of the best live performers i've ever seen he was the best live yeah performer I've he ever really seen. was he really was who else have you seen that was that was that good yeah nobody yeah he, he i mean performed. i've seen i've seen good bands before with great sound systems but he was so obsessed with everything, including the EQ, the bass response. I mean, he perfected, made sure everyone was on point. Everybody. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite band that he had? Revolution or Third Eye or? Well, I'm biased. I like the Revolution. I think they did his major stuff. That uh, you know, he, that was his. That was his development. The other one. The other bands, I, I'm not so. Although uh, there's a great players in those bands too, but the Revolution was his band too. I mean, he groomed them, and you know that's the thing is they yeah, they, they were really locked in. Even though they weren't, you know, all virtuosos, they they did the solid parts. Yeah. I mean, I went and saw the Revolution by themselves, and they. It was sounded just like Prince without him. I mean, and they were the ones that did most of the tracking. Prince had the guitar slung over his shoulder and while he was singing. So, you know, they were they were great. And for him to be able to release that that control was telling. Did he get scared when he would release the control and someone else no had idea. an idea? I don't know. He had Chick to protect him usually. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, he he wasn't a big guy, so I suppose he was scared in crowds, because it you don't you don't understand because you're not a little guy like that, and he was, and everyone overshadowed him height wise, and mass, so yeah, I, that's why he had a bodyguard. Yeah, I was um, I told a story when he I think it was Jesse Johnson and Prince, they were here, and it might have been during controversy, I, I don't really remember, but they got recognized, and they had to run, and they were laughing so hard, because, you know, that was kind of the first time in L.A. that he was recognized and chased by fans, so it was, it was pretty cute. You did Jesse's album also. Yeah. Was that done here? That was fun. I did it in his basement. Okay. Jesse's he, a sweetheart, isn't he? 
he had a great studio in his basement, and uh, we did it. It was 14 below outside, <laughs> so it was really tough to get out there. But um, that was a great album. I liked it. Maybe not as uh, sonically present as something I would have done in Sunset Sound, but yeah, you got to work where you work. Do you remember the first time you came to Sunset Sound? First time I came to Sunset Sound was when I was a songwriter in L.A. in 1968. Okay. And I made friends with Dave Mason. Love him. And uh, he was doing his album in this room. Oh, shit. This uh, was the room, by the way. This yeah. was the room. Yeah, and uh, Tommy LaPuma was the producer, and Al Schmidt was the engineer. Wow, And I what never a team. knew anybody. I just wanted to come and see. And uh, it was fascinating to watch Dave put together his album. And, I mean, they called Leon Russell at 3 in the morning and said, can you come over and play a piano part? He was here in a second. It's like, who stays up that late and does it? But Those guys. back then, everybody <laughs> yeah, did. everybody did. Yeah. 1968. So that, was, that was my first impression. That's right when we built Studio 2. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, yeah, this room is just, you know, this is... It's just look at the ceiling of it, how slanted it is. It's such well, an iconic it? you know, place. It's a garage. Yeah, of course. I mean, look at the—that's where the oil would spill down. Right. That's why. I mean. Well, it, um, Jay Graydon was doing um, a guitar overdub, and it was raining, really, really hard. And uh, he came out here and he said, "God, that floor is shiny." And he started to step down, and it was—it had flooded. Oh. And this was all water. Wow. It was really scary. So, yeah, and it was all slanted. <laughs> Over in that corner, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're standing or sitting right where Eddie Van Halen stood to do Eruption. I mean, one of the greatest guitar pieces ever. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think anyone realizes just how many great records were done in this studio. Yeah. I mean, if you had a page in Billboard listing everybody who was recorded here, it, it's mind-blowing. Mind blowing. Well, and the and the feeling in this place is too. It's just it, it carries over. I know that sounds airy fairy, but it's true. It there's a vibe here that's really. It's not fancy. It's just a great. And it's not corporate at all. Yeah, and that was what I always loved about it. Yeah, you know, it was a family owned business, and Tootie was amazing. I mean, he was the sweetest man. Yeah, I never saw him mad. I heard he had a temper, but um, you know, I mean, he took me aside and told me to not be a ball buster. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Tootie Camerata? Yeah. You met him a couple times? Yeah. Numerous times? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I would have been able to. I mean, you know, I'd never really had much cause to talk with anybody because I was always in the room. And there's so many great drummers, too, that say that the drum sounds in this room and two are just the best in the world. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it, like it really was. I remember Ringo playing right here. I can't remember who he was playing with. I remember the engineer was Warren Dewey, and um, I was assisting on it. But yeah, this was a great room, and so was two. Three wasn't. I didn't love three's drum sound, but it it passed. It was okay. We stay 90% busy here. Still to this day, people want to go record where the Doors recorded, where Van Halen recorded, where Prince recorded. I mean, still even back in those days in the 80s, you know, people came to this room because that's where their favorite records were done. Mm -hmm. And it still happens today. Michael Bublé just left this room after three months. 
David Crosby's in Studio 2 right now. Um, it's just an exciting place. If you're, you listen to records and music, and you're listening to the rooms, too. Mm -hmm. So, time. you know, if you hear a song that sounds familiar, you might be hearing this room or another room that somebody else worked in. And that means a lot, because you're not just recording direct, like in your bedroom, unless your bedroom sounds great, which some people do, but you, you want the sound of the, the reflection of the room. Sure. Plus our echo chambers, too. Everybody said, they're not echo chambers, it's reverb. And I said, no, we had echo chambers. Yep. <laughs> Live echo chambers. What, what's your opinion about Van Halen and those records that they made in Studio 2 here? I like Van Halen. Yeah. But, I mean, they track so much live that yeah, that's the that's, room you're in and a lot of that stuff. That's the way to do it. I love tracking a band live. That It's a whole, it's a whole different... Well, and there's the energy of that, too. And the leakage is important. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have a um, ton of your fans, if you guys are up for some fan questions, um, back to Funky Town. I've always loved the way the cowbell in Funky Town is mixed. It is fairly dry and prominent in the verses, but on the breakdown transitions, the dry signal goes away and it's pushed back into the room-type reverb before disappearing for the chorus. It's a clever bit of mixing and a unique way to approach smoothly bridging two different rhythmic sections of a song. <laughs> that's a pretty that, big compliment. That's cool. <laughs> that's cool. If What's he wants question? to know how I that got that good. sound, it's... Uh, uh, basically, it's a, one of those, it's a plate, and we turn the plate down, the EMT plate, all the way to zero, and yeah. then the only thing you heard was the return of the plate. You didn't hear the direct cowbell. Oh, wow. That was muted, and so the, it goes back in the room because it really just goes back into the, the EMT, and all you're hearing is the return of that. And to add, that C minor 7 chord in Funky Town is one of my favorite clean sound, sound guitar ever. <laughs> I got that from Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Nice. Shotgun. Remember Shotgun. that song? Of course. Shotgun. Dang it. It's the same lick. Same <laughs> chord. Cool. All right. Another one. Hey, so looking forward to this episode. Prince still loved Keypex Gates on guitar late into his recording career. I've always been curious, though, what direct box did he prefer to use back then on drum machines, synths, bass, and guitars? Direct boxes. Yeah. Whatever you have available, I think. Right. <laughs> I don't think there simple. was any special direct box. It was probably, a, you know. Not for the drum machine either. What the studio direct boxes are. Okay, yeah. There you go, uh, Dan Saxton. Yeah, well, Prince didn't use a lot of DIs. He no. didn't. No, even when we use, we tr I mean, direct, what you think is direct is usually like a a champ, a print, you know, a Fender champ, a small amp. Well, and also he had those um, those guitar pedals, you know, he had those. That, yeah, right. That little board of guitar, and he put everything through that. I mean, yeah. it wasn't just guitars, he put everything that, he just had great ideas, and you just went with them. If they worked, they worked. Yeah. You know? Do you think they were inspired by anything he had heard or seen, or he just came up with things? I think no, he just I, came up with it. He, he you know, he, he fiddled around with everything till it he got what the sound was he wanted. 
I think he knew, I think he could hear it in his head, and he knew what he wanted. The savant. All right, question David, question Peggy, question, I got a ton of them here. The Kiss demo didn't sound like a hit. After David worked his magic, did he think he had a smash on his hands, or was he extremely surprised how big a hit Kiss was? I never know what's going to be a single. I mean, I'm I'm a singles guy, and I... I love to make singles, and I think that's the way to get ahead. But you never know how they, yeah, never know. Good. Purple Rain, I never knew that was going to be such a big hit. I mean, just you can't predict that. If I could, I'd be a million, a millionaire, but you can't but, predict it. And you think it's something that you like, but not everybody likes yeah. what you like or hears what you hear or is touched right. by what you are touched I've by. I love, love lots of songs that I, I thought were going to be great, yeah. but they didn't. Vice versa, you know. Yeah. You just don't know. With your time with Prince in the studio, did you ever hear something that stood out and you're like, oh, whoa, that's that's going places? I knew the things I liked. Um, I thought, you know, when I first started up, well, I started with Controversy, but by the time 1999 came around, Little Red Corvette was great, Raspberry Beret, that was on, that wasn't on that one. That, well, Raspberry Beret was an old song. I don't know where he put it. I think he tried to put it on different albums. What are you talking about? Raspberry Beret. That's an old, old, old song. And yeah. he tried You know it. what I remember about that song is he played it by himself on a piano when I, at one point, and um, I realized how intricate the chord progression is. It's not easy. It's a very complex set of chords. Yeah. That's what's so cool about it. There's that big piece on YouTube of him. Someone leaked audio or a tape because there's like two hours. If you just Google Sunset Sound Prince Piano, it's a master tape that's up, and it's like two hours of him just sitting at the Steinway in Studio 3. You never heard that, Peggy? No. Oh, go to YouTube. It's got like... Who to- who put that out? I don't know. It's everywhere, though. And then we played a little bit of it, and Prince's estate, his attorneys, everyone emailed me and like... Cease and desist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hand over all the master tapes. I like, look at this was already up on YouTube. I just reposted it. I'll tell you something. Somebody, um, somebody got a hold of me and said, well, good for you for, you know, making some money off this. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, there was an engineer that sold the lyrics to When Doves Cry, and he said he worked on it. And I was like, no, <laughs> I didn't sell those, and I was the one that worked on it. So it was, yeah, people are claiming all kinds of stuff. So I don't Does know. Does that make you kind of sick, both of you? That I, think just, I think it's sad, yeah. actually. I just think it's sad that you have to claim something. I, I think a lot of people don't even understand what it is we do. <laughs> Question, Peggy. Miss. Did Prince ever come into the studio with demos almost done, or was it usually all in his head and he put it on tape from scratch? Both. Both. I mean, sometimes there would be something on a tape that he'd say, go get... I mean, because cases, anvil cases of tapes came from Minneapolis. Yeah. And then we would add to that when, we, when he packed up. But sometimes we'd work on something that it was in the... It was in his case, and sometimes we would start from scratch. It just, and then sometimes we'd finish a whole song and never hear it again. Yeah, there's been a lot of songs that we finished that 
that I finished that I thought was going to be great and never heard about it. Question, David. Are there any Prince songs that you wish Prince had let you produce or remix? Any, un, any, any unreleased tracks that you worked on? Are there any that he wanted me to remix? Is that what you're saying? The question is, are there any Prince songs that you wish oh. Prince had let you produce or remix? Yeah, but uh, I I get a chance. I mean, I just remixed the, the film of the concert for Purple Rain, the original one, yeah. for the Netflix movie. And um, I got a chance to dig back into it, and it was fun. It's like, you know... I was used. To, I recorded it a long time, thirty-five years ago. So <laughs> I, I knew what was there, but I got to do my mix, which was fun. In the mid '90s, the last song you worked with Prince, I believe, was "Most Beautiful Girl in the World." Correct? Yeah. Why was that the last song? Because I uh, I moved to Memphis. I moved out of Minneapolis. I was sick of. Um, I was. I was. I, I did a couple big rock groups like Big Head Todd and the Monsters yeah, and a couple others. And then the record company started sending me stuff just like that because they always want to imitate and have their version. And about two albums in, I said, "This is I'm not, I'm not doing anything that's meaningful. And so I discovered a blues artist uh, out of Wisconsin, and I went down to Memphis to a convention, and I ran smack into... Uh, Gary Bells, who was starting the House of Blues label at the time, and they offered to ship me to Memphis, and I could take over the studio there, Kiva, and uh, it sounded good at the time for me, because I wanted to switch styles and um, do meaningful music, and the blues, to me, sounded pretty meaningful. Yeah. How long were you there? I was there for... I was in Memphis for uh, three or four years, and then I moved to Nashville because there was an actual record business in Nashville. And the House of Blues record label didn't last. They they dissolved it, so I wasn't hired anymore. I was just at the House of Blues studio. Well, I told you I'm friends with Gary Bell's son, Victory, and then they had the uh, studio in Encino at his home. Yeah. And I think, but the one in Memphis was the first studio. Yeah. Now they have one in Nashville, but I think they sold all that. Yeah, stuff. he's not in the studio business anymore. Yeah, he's a nice guy. He uh, knows a lot about music, too. Yeah. And you worked with uh, Janet Jackson, too, on some stuff, right? I did one song on her Control album uh, when I was in Minneapolis before I left. And uh, I guess Jimmy and Terry decided to put it on the record, so that's good. Nice. Did- I did a demo with Terry and Jimmy with Janet here in Studio 3. You, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Janet Jackson, and Peggy McCurry, Studio 3. Do you remember the track? Nasty Girls, and she didn't like it. She didn't like it. She didn't think it was her image, which is true. So did Prince write that? Or Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis wrote it for her? They produced it? No. uh, Oh, I don't remember. You know, I really don't remember. I thought that was a Prince song. But maybe not. I don't remember. Yeah. But I remember she didn't like, she, I, it wasn't her. It's hard to tell she, the difference. I mean, they honestly, I love Jimmy and Terry, but that first Janet Jackson record was licks from Prince 
they totally took all the licks from Prince. Really? Well, if you listen to it, it's the yeah. same synthesizer licks, the same grooves, and different got, drum sound, but... Yeah, they can, or Prince can them because... Well, Terry they, missed had, a, they missed a show. Well, I yeah, they they, missed, uh, and we're working missed, outside of Prince, too. Yeah, they missed a gig because they were working. They were trying to get something going outside of it. and uh, Which they did. <laughs> then they got snowed in and... Oh, really? That was the best thing he could have done for them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right? <laughs> they, They're doing great. Yeah. Still to this day. Uh, so how did um, Paisley Park gets built? And then he, was it Studio B there that was kind of built for? Studio B is a copy of Studio 3 here. Uh, same board, same Domitio modified API. I mean, we worked in that Studio 3 here so much that... Prince wanted to make sure we had a room like that because he didn't like leaving Minneapolis. He didn't like coming out here. Only um, in the winter he liked leaving <laughs> Minneapolis. <laughs> what? He he left in the winter. Yeah, right. Did you you didn't ever go to Paisley, right? I I miss Paisley. Yeah. Um, you know, David Leonard and I were supposed to be his engineers there and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. um, David went, and then you stayed here. No. David didn't go either? No, Paisley wasn't built. Oh, yeah. Susan never even worked at Paisley. Yeah, he, he wanted to build it for a long time. And then I was doing Jill Jones' record at Electric Lady in New York. And Sal, who built Paisley Park, was the tech at Electric oh, wow. Lady. So I, I gave his name to Prince, and before I even knew it, Sal designed the whole thing. He designed the whole thing. He built it, and he's, he was... The guy. Yeah, it was weird because I always thought Susan worked there, and she said no, it wasn't built by the time she. No, left. it was. She uh, she worked with him in the warehouse all the time. Yeah, she worked with us in the warehouse. Right. I, th I don't I don't remember seeing her at Paisley Park. No, I don't think she and she lived in Minneapolis. Was that Lisa Chamblay then that got into Paisley? The f what's that? Lisa Chamblay. I don't know that name. You know oh, her. I know Lisa. Yeah, she was um, one of the last women that worked with him. Oh. When was the last time you've been to Paisley? Uh, well, I was out there trying to fix the board about a half a year before he died. It's the last time I was, was there. Was he home? What? Was Prince there? Yeah. So you got to see him six months before he passed away. Yeah, he walked in and he hugged me. <laughs> I hadn't seen him in years. Wow. I thought that was nice, you know. I always wanted to get in touch with him. I, you know, the last time I saw him, my daughter was eight months old. So. Yeah. Did Was the last time you saw him at the concert then, when he met your daughter or held your daughter? Here. Oh, that was here. Yeah, Studio I 3. brought her down um, to Studio 3. He was working. What year was that? She was born in 86. So you hadn't seen him since 86? I mean, mm -hmm. where you're face-to-face -face talking? Holy cow. And I always wanted to, you know, we had a real connection, and I really wanted to to reach out. I just never. The, the management company was gone. You know, he was on his own. The record, everybody I knew at the record company, yeah. they were gone. So. You know, a lot of people have said that in the last couple of months of his life, when he was at Paisley, he was trying to right his wrongs. He was contacting people. 
I mean, do you I think he know. regretted kind of being rough on people? Maybe it softened I have up. No idea. You I had mentioned know. that he was pretty beat up by life. He had lost children, yeah. marriages. You know. Well, and and uh, you know, Susan Rogers made an observation. She said that I and me and Lisa, I and Lisa, me and me and Lisa had him when he was more human than when she had him, and then um, Sylvia Massey. Because then he was a, you know, he was rock and roll. I mean, he was a mogul by then. And um, he became a mogul when I was working with him. Yeah. But he was, you know, just a kid from Minneapolis when I first met him. And I think he returned to that. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, life had beat him up. and. I just never knew he was in so much pain. You could tell he was in pain yeah. by how mean he was. I mean, you know, oh. people... People aren't that, when people are in pain, they offload it. And that's the way yeah, I right. always looked at him, him, you know. And the drugs he was taking with me. Well, that's the, the part I was surprised. I did. I swore that it was not drugs. I swore he, to everybody yeah. that that wasn't it. I got so mad when I heard that. I said, he did not do drugs. Yeah. You know, you got fired if you, I said, no, that man did not do drugs. So I was really, really surprised that it was what he died of. Yeah, but he was in a lot of pain from the from physical pain, you know, from jumping off those risers and six-inch yep. heels. The way he performed, he he didn't he gave it all to the audience, and um, he paid for it. Yeah, he would have ripped himself in half trying to yeah. perform. Yeah. Where were you, David, when you heard that he had passed away? I was in Nashville, and it just was all over the news all of a sudden, and. Were you heartbroken? Were you yeah, just, I was yeah. amazed, heartbroken, disappointed. It's like this guy was never gonna die. Yeah, that was how I, you know, his impression was. It's gonna go on forever, and that was just a big surprise. Yeah. Where were you? I was at home, and um, the receptionist called me. That used to work here. She called Lisa me. Lisa Matthews. No, oh, her no, name no, was um, Suzanne Edgren, yep. and she called me at 7 or 8 in the morning, and she said, did you hear? And I said, no, what? And she said that Prince had died. And then she called me back to remind me that I had brought her into the studio to listen to When Doves Cry at 8 o'clock in the morning. We had worked for two days straight, and I said, this is an amazing song. You've got to hear it. And she reminded me of that. And then I contacted Sheila. I reached out to her. E? Yeah. Just through, just through text, and then, yeah. David, what are some ways the Event Tide harmonizer was utilized on Prince's productions? What did he like about it? The harmonizer? Yeah. Well, it was great for a lot of things. For a vocal delay effect, uh, to, to you know, add a harmony part to things, to doubling guitars, it, it had it had a unique delay, time constant shift. It was a time shifter, and plus it was a delay, and we used it for a lot of things. Kick drum would be great. Did he uh, when he played guitar? Was it DI or did he have a mic'd up amp? Both. Both, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what mic he would use? <laughs> no. You, it was usually, if you're recording guitar, it's one dynamic mic and one condenser mic. And you kind of 
put them together. David, I would love to know how involved was he in the EQing, panning, mixing of his tracks? Did he leave most of those choices up to the engineer, you, or take full control? No, he liked to do it himself. Really? Yeah. There were times that he would, you know, like he would throw his chair back and say, get a sound on this, because he was lost. Yeah. But other than that, he liked to play himself. He just got lost in the studio. He loved it. Yeah. He, he was did. limited to some of the stuff that he could do, but what he could do, he did. I mean, you're very responsible for teaching him a lot about recording. That's what Lisa told me, that he carried that through until the technology would not handle it anymore. Did you see him more advanced in uh, working the consoles and about technical his technical ability rising after being with Peggy for a few years? He obviously started tracking the vocals, but he would make everyone leave, but then he would hang the Neumann U-47. Yeah, he didn't want anybody to hear him didn't make a mistake. Yeah. Or he I never wanted, heard him make a mistake. <laughs> I know. He wanted to be free to try different things. Well, and I think, too, there was, you know, what what triggered that was we were it was late we had finished the track and he was we were doing vocals and i got tired and i missed a punch and you know he was having to communicate and if he was doing it himself he didn't have to communicate right. he could just create and uh, it didn't it didn't interrupt the creative flow for him and i think he enjoyed that he spent hours layering vocals all right, just a few more technical questions. Obviously, I mean, he's the greatest artist ever, so people are just so curious. Um, <laughs> these are kind of coming in live. Can somebody please explain, did Apollonia actually write any tracks? <laughs> I, not that I know of. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to throw her under the bus. But. A lot of people said they wrote tracks after he died. but I, just, I never... He didn't collaborate when I worked with no, him. No, I don't it think so. It was all him, you know? No, so. he didn't. He was always by himself. I mean, I wrote a couple of songs with him and Levi, but that was minimal. It wasn't anything major. Yeah. David Z, huge fan. Did Prince play drums with the drum machine on certain records, then mix the drum machine out? Like a glorified, glorified click track? Jesse Johnson hinted towards this on another interview. I don't think so. I never saw that either. I never heard anything like that. No, when he did it, he... He, he, he was so good at programming the machine. That and he was a good drummer. Yeah, he was a great drummer. I don't know. If he did, if he did something like that, I would think he'd left, leave the drums in. But Yeah. yeah he... he um, just decided in his head what you know he would come in and either he would use the drum machine or he'd sit yeah. down and try to work out a rhythm on the you know on the kit and then he would go from there you don't remember how you mic the drums at all oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> it was it was what we did in the in the 80s i really don't remember i wish i did i mean but it was just a standard what everybody you yeah. know of course i never this then yeah 421 yeah, there was the nothing, yeah. nothing different than than what they were doing than what they were doing <laughs> yeah. whatever that was yeah what kind of tape did he use 456 well, see, he was using 250 when I worked with him what calibration oh well I don't know Jeez. you gotta ask the techie that how hard did you hit it for saturation I use my ears I don't know about... I never used meters. He hit really hard. Yeah. 
was it one twenty four track machine or two? If Sometimes it was one, it was two, yeah. but most of the time it was one when I worked with him. It was pretty. It was pretty simple what he did. Yeah. You know, basic tracks, and then his vocals were huge. I mean, and his guitar parts. Yeah, the only time he'd use a lot of tracks were probably for background vocals, and yeah. he wanted to stack his harmony, but pretty simple. And even then, it was for the most part, it was just twenty four. You know. With tracks left over sometimes. Yeah. David Z, your snare sound on Fine Young Cannibals is one of the best snare sounds ever. <laughs> this is a prince. Prince. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is. How did you get the snare sound on Driver? It's a sandwich. It's a sandwich of drum sounds. I. Uh, it was actually, it was the Lin 9000 drum machine. And uh, I used the snare from that machine. Plus, uh, I use another snare out in the studio that I hooked up an Oratone speaker, set it up on, on top of that snare, and mic'd the snare, and then pumped the electronic snare sound through that speaker so I got a real drum playing it at the same time. Wow. <clears throat> and I also hit a, uh, a drum head that was off the, the drum, and, it's and synced them together, and... On the drum head, I boosted 1K about 40 million dB, and uh, and the the tail of it was uh, actually a, a. I used to do this a lot. There, I took a ghetto blaster, and there's a. You could turn it on a non-station, so it was just it was just hissing. Yeah. And I gated that to the snare, so it went, put a, and put a tail on it. And I think that was the track I boosted a lot at 1K. But it was a sandwich of sounds. I don't want to get pulled off YouTube, but... Yep. That's a great snare sound. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's mainly the hiss from the blaster you're hearing. Other than that Neumann U47, what mics were used on his vocals? I know when I worked with him, he used Richard's Corby 67. What kind of compression was used? We always use the same thing. Yep. The U47 and the LA-2A. Peggy, that story, though, of you when you guys tracked How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, was that your birthday? No. That was a, that was a different song. Yeah, we were finished with 1999, and it was like kind of relaxed finally and um he came in and got us drunk and we cut that song <laughs> and that was like one of the first times you ever saw him drink alcohol even right oh he i don't think he drank i think he just wanted me to drink to so yeah it was um yeah he had a runner go get a bottle of spumante asti for him and then remy for me and we sat and had a cut yeah he drank yeah. At the Steinway in Studio 2 this time, yeah. though. So you guys wander in Studio 2. Yeah. He sits down. And says, just he says, what do you drink? And I said, what do you mean? He said, alcohol, what do you drink? And I said, Remy Martin. He said, order a bottle of Remy Martin. And I said, no, no, no. I, I, you don't want me to drink. Yeah. But we did. And then he just said. He just sat down and started. I loved that song. I thought yeah. that was beautiful what he did there. And then that appeared with, because you worked on the hits and B-sides, correct? What song is that? How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? The piano? Yeah. 
Didn't you compile that with the Hits and B-Sides album? You know, my memory is not that sure. good. Sorry. And I don't know what side anything wound up on. I, uh, I never knew what that wound up on. Yeah. I mean, it's like I I never knew if it was as good as yeah, I remember. Yeah, I'm not it. sure if I, I ever will hear the songs I thought I was going to hear. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not sure. And it, you never knew. They changed titles, you know? I mean. Right. He would, what he told you was the title was not necessarily what it ended up being. So, yeah, you um, that was the second take though. He he just played it. You guys tracked it and it was done. Mm -hmm. Well, it was B side. Yeah. So he could just. It actually went for a long time. We faded it out, but he just sat and played the piano, which I just love to listen to him play the piano. David, what, what advice would you give yourself at 18 years of age today? What advice would I give myself at 18 years of age? When you were 18, was that right when you came to L.A., kind of? Or was it a little later? No, he was 23. I was 22. That's 22. when you came. And then you left at 26? Yeah. Okay, right, let's say 21 years old, what would you tell yourself today if you could go back? Keep going. Exactly what you did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what else are you going to say at that age? No regrets at all? Well, of course I have regrets, but it's too late now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no sense in looking back. Peggy, what would you tell yourself at 18 years old? 18, I was... Uh, You're riding horses out in the yeah. desert. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing boy. Um, I was 26. 324 when I started here and somebody said how did you get started and I said I was just too naive to think I couldn't do it you know I was raised like a boy and I just thought I could do anything <laughs> my dad needed boys on that farm and he got all girls so here's another f uh, FYC fine young cannibals question who played the kinky schnitzer-esque funky clean <laughs> guitar on she drives me crazy I bet David himself did it <laughs> Who played the kinky schnitzer-esque funky schnitzer? clean guitar on She Drives Me Crazy? What's well, kinky schnitzer-esque? <laughs> <laughs> Who did play guitar on that track? Uh, Andy Cox, really. Okay. He was the group's guitar player. Paradigm Productions. Please, I would love to hear the story behind Darling Nikki. How was it created, step by step, from what instrument to the next? Did he come into the studio knowing exactly what he wanted, the song? It's one of the most unique written songs by Prince. Did you do Darling Nikki? I, I don't think I did that song. I didn't do it either. Purple Rain, so yeah. He didn't play he, it at the concert. Yeah. I think he cut that live. I didn't, yeah. or he cut it at his house a long time ago. Yeah. They did a tribute to him. Sheila did a tribute to him. Around the Grammys or something like that. Yeah, the Nokia Theater. I went yeah. to it. Did you? I was yeah. there too. Gary too was played with. Gary did the one of my favorite songs is the Cross off Sign of the Times. Mm -hmm. And oh, Gary played that. Yeah, that was good. Yep. Well, and and uh, the Foo Fighters did Darling Nikki. Yeah. And I was watching an interview with Dave Grohl, and somebody asked him if you could come back as anybody who would you come back and he looked and he said prince i just <laughs> love that i was like yeah yeah do you think it's more important for artists to create singles now to get noticed or do a whole album 
I always think it's more important for artists to do singles or songs that could be singles. I mean, unless they want to do a 10-minute version of, you know, we did that already. Yeah. But I always, like I said, I'm a singles guy. I believe that there's a song that will spearhead the record that gets played on the radio. I mean, not necessarily on the radio, but just is more of an audience favorite. I don't get a Less indulgent. Yeah. Sure. You agree? Yeah. What's the track that you're most proud of? I can't answer that. No? I, I, no, I got a lot of them. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's some standouts. Of course, Kiss is a standout song. Yeah. Funky Town's a standout song. She Drives Me Crazy is a standout song. I, I, those are the high points, I think, that I've done. I'm a musician, and I work in a studio, and I've always I wanted to ask you, was it more important for you to be admired or judged by your peers in the studio and music industry or the fans? I, I do it. Well, I, when, my experience is when you record in the studio, we're doing it to make ourselves happy. Yeah. And if we make ourselves happy and the group is happy and I'm happy, that's all I care about. I mean, because if we're happy, then hopefully the, it'll, everybody else is going to be happy. Because we're we're noticed for our taste, not just not just you know music. It's yeah. Like, is our taste translatable to the public? Well, we proved it over and over, and yeah. Hopefully, and I think if you make it for your peers, it's not, you know, that's it's different than when you're making it. Because I know that people have said, I'll, I'll be listening to something that I did, and it was like, oh, God. And they said, Peggy, people don't hear that. And that's what we nitpick, and we listen to everything. But, you know, if you make a good-sounding record or it's a good song, people like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how Prince was. If the groove yeah. was there, yeah. that's well, all that you, matters. You can't fuck up a good song. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. People try. But. Well, I think uh, it's amazing that I get to come in here and speak with both of you, and you're so accomplished. And Are you sick of talking about Prince? <laughs> you know, it's a fact of life. I don't talk about him all the time, but I know. people want to know. Yeah. And who better to tell them, I guess. Well, and when I, you know, when I first started working with him, people were making fun of him, you know. Yeah. And and I I, I was protective of him because I really respected his talent, and um, there were, you know, and the studio is it's schlubby, you know. We don't come down, and he always dressed really nicely, and I think he was kind of an well, he was an oddity in life because he was so talented, and but. Um, yeah, I I protected him in that way. I was very protective of him, and sure. people made fun of him. Yeah, other bands here at the studio. Mm -hmm. first yeah, he broke a lot of rules, and a lot of people didn't like him in the yeah. beginning. I mean, he the the black audience didn't like him in the beginning at all, 
because he wasn't like the OJs and he wasn't like the Temptations. Right. And he didn't do what everybody else was doing. He, he mixed, uh, you know, David Bowie and it was the guy that did, you know, what the hell? The, um, he, he mixed English punk with R&B. Mm -hmm. And he, he was very influenced by that big, you know. And he educated people as to what new music could be. Why do you think he didn't want to be encapsulated into black music? Because he had your brother, even as a drummer, as a white drummer, didn't he say? Yeah, that? and he had Matt Fink, and he had Wendy and Lisa. Yeah. I mean, he was very diversified. And, and he had a, you know, a group that was females, males, black, white. He sang about that, black, white, Puerto Rican. You know, he, he believed in mixing people and integration and not what we're doing today, that's for sure. Well, what do you think he would have thought about the George Floyd? What? What do you think? Great question what he would have thought about George Floyd in Minneapolis being killed? Would he have, I mean, I, I, like everybody felt, but I just wonder, I always wondered if he would speak out, because he wasn't really. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either, because you didn't see him speak out for causes. No. And what he did represent was very quiet, and it was children usually, and, you know, promoting well i don't think the div divisiveness that we have in the united states it didn't exist it didn't exist and he died before that happened yeah i know so i don't know if he would have spoken out or not i i somebody told me that minneapolis was one of the hardest places for it was racist it was very racist and divided and i never that. saw it i mean I, I didn't feel it you know of course i'm not black so i yeah, didn't i didn't black, experience yeah. anything like that I mean, it probably was. When I went back there after he had passed, he was he, he was everywhere. I mean, that's their their native son. Things things are purple, and he's you know. I mean, he's honored there. Yeah, it was all over the world, really. Yeah. Do you have any desire to go back to Paisley now that he's passed, just to visit? I'd like to go back to work. I love that room. Yeah. I'd like to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Paisley. Can we get Nobody Peggy can believe in? that. Oh, really? Wow. I've never been in there. Yeah, I had an officer for eight years. Did you? Wow. And basically, the Studio 2 was mine. I ran it. That's Studio crazy. A was his. Oh. What artist did you work with in uh, 2? Oh, gee. In Paisley Park? Yeah. Well, that's where I did a lot of things. The Fine Young Cannibals. I didn't know that. Yeah, Fine Young uh, Cannibals they, was done there? Yeah, they came to Minneapolis because... Uh, they would have a hard time getting together in London because they were so distracted. Yeah. And the record label head said, maybe we'll ship them to Minneapolis where there's nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. They came on the plane and they were in culture shock. I bet. Wow. And Roland Gift, the singer, brought his own bag of brown rice with him because he didn't think we'd have brown rice in <laughs> Minneapolis. <laughs> and they were there. I mean, it worked. They, they had nothing to do but work. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when it, it's kind of out in the field, so they really had no place to go. But um, That's in Chanhassen, right? Yeah. yeah. And it was a lot less built up than it is today. But, uh, uh, you know, I did a lot of records there.
If I buy the plane tickets, can we take Peggy to uh, Paisley? Yeah. And get us in the door? Yeah. I uh, actually, that story that Dave Chappelle told about playing basketball yeah. was true. I was there that night. It was, it, and that, you know, somebody said, Peggy, you've got to watch this. And I said, oh, my God, that's, that's, that was really well done. Dave Chappelle yeah. did a really good job. It was hysterical, but it's a true story. I know. 20 second time out on the field. Wait a minute. So Dave Chappelle, The Chappelle Show, it was an amazing show. He did a skit with Rick James playing basketball and then making him pancakes. Please tell me that this you were there that yeah, night? Yeah, I was there that night, yeah. Can you please tell us the story? He rented, um, it was in the Hollywood Hills, he rented a house that used to be um, the Shah of Iran. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know if that's who owned it, but that's who was there before Prince. And it was this real fancy house. And uh, it, I think it was after a concert here. And we were all over there, and yeah. um, that happened. We are sitting around the kitchen, and there was, you know, Prince's group of people, and... Uh, <laughs> Charlie Murphy. Char Charlie Murphy, yeah. And they, yeah, because that's how the, even the skit goes that they came back to the house. Did they play basketball? Yeah, there was a basketball court, and in the kitchen they're all sitting around eating and drinking. And Prince goes, uh, "You want to play basketball?" And he <laughs> it's like two in the morning. In a low voice, huh? It was it like two in the morning or something? Yeah, it was probably late. Oh my gosh! So then, did he come back and make him pancakes afterwards? Well. The, the cook, Randy Laterman, made him pancakes. But want some pancakes? <laughs> he, he, he did say, you want to have some pancakes. Did you play? No, I didn't play. I was. Who won the game? Blouses? I, yeah, probably. I don't <laughs> Prince is real good at basketball. Oh, I heard. Really, really good. good. Yeah. Really good. Is there a basketball court in Paisley? In, in the uh, soundstage. Of course It's in is. indoors. Well, yeah. It wasn't really a basketball court. Yeah, there was a hoop, though. That's incredible. He was good. He used to have the Timberwolves out there and play with them. I mean, he's <laughs> they're eight feet tall, and he's running underneath them. There's a picture somebody showed me, and I'm sure it's sunset, of him throwing a shot. Shooting in the court out here? Uh-huh. Somebody showed it to me, and I said, that's the old because where um, where your table is now was a was a little ten storage room. Yeah, before that, that's a, a lounge yeah. now, but it used to yeah. be. Yeah, it was a little ten storage room, and he's in front of that shooting a hoop. Yeah, Paul said he would see him out there two in the morning playing yeah, basketball that's what he by used himself to do on breaks. Yeah, it was a good release, and you know, good thing I played basketball. And we also played ping pong a lot, too. Yeah, he was good at that. Yeah, he was really good at that. I never beat him on it, it, with anything. No. But at least I put up a good, I was a good opponent. I don't know. I, I, he was too competitive. He's very competitive. For me. Yeah. And I was We went bowling too. one night here oh, that, when Danny Cordell had a bowling alley on uh, Santa Monica. And uh, I beat him, and he was really depressed. <laughs> I mean, seriously be depressed. He, he wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> he just sat there like defeated. And I went, okay, well, I better not do that yeah. anymore. <laughs> well, I'll, be, I'll be beating him anymore. I tried to beat him. I couldn't, so that was. 
Do you think that the music world, you know, one great thing I loved about Prince was that he didn't mind calling out the biggest stars in the world, the Britney Spears in syncs. He's like, I play real music. I write real songs. Yeah, he was. He didn't care who he said that. It, to. Competition uh, is what he was driven. Well, I think it offended him though that these artists who have nineteen ghostwriters and collaborators and producers there at the top of the charts when he's one of the greatest creatives ever. And yeah. why do they deserve to be up there when? He's doing it the real way. I remember when that happened. I remember when it shifted to manufactured music. I mean, it was going that way. But in the beginning, it was run by artists, you know. Yeah. Herb Albert, you know, that was, it was different. It was a different business. And yeah, then it was when it different. became a business, it was when the lawyers and the accountants took over. And so. Yep. The accountants wanted to play. Yeah, and then it became a business. Somebody sent me one of my favorite performances of him on YouTube, which didn't have a lot of views on it. It's him and the Third Eye Band, and they're doing um, She's Always in My Hair. And it's like a nine-minute version. And in the breakdown in the middle, he's like, this is real music. These are real musicians. And it's just like, that's so powerful, him saying that. Because do you feel that music would be completely different if he was still in the world today? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he would hold up his end. Yeah. I mean, it. it I think there's not enough crazy people in music anymore. That's the problem. We need crazy people to do outlandish stuff. And the people that are hold the pockets in the budgets they they don't want to do that they want to play it safe yeah. do what's been done we want our version of that it's you know it's hard it's really easy to not be original and you know i always try to i always try to reach out for original artists it's harder and harder to find mm -hmm. what do you think about social media when it comes to music do you mess around with I'm, social media? I'm really always on social media. Yeah. I'm always on YouTube. I'm always on Instagram. I'm looking for new artists all the time. And there are some there. There's some really good 17-year-olds right now. Um, your Instagram is Rivkin underscore David. Is that what it is? Yep. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what my name is. I I use it to snoop on people. Yeah. Well, and that's what I, you know, my name, it's like, you know, you try one, it's like, that's taken, well, you try another one, then the, the one you end up with is, I don't remember. You know? Yeah, I think they gave me one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the last, um, the last one I called was Gary Clark Jr. I said, that guy, he's, yeah. he's going to be a star. He's got soul, he's an old soul in a young body, and uh, and that's... I'm sure Peggy does the same thing I do. Is we look for, we look for special artists and yeah. try to find them and discover. I look for them. special people in, in yeah. life. You know, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, you just interesting. That's how I got instincts. into this instincts. Yeah. Well, and I think too that you're 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 an also an artist. 
That's yeah. the reason you get into this business is yeah. because it touches you and you're an artist of some kind. You know, I wish I had been more technical. That's the only thing I wish that I wish I had. But I'd get those, I'd get those schematics and those manuals, and it was like I just couldn't do it. It's just, <laughs> mine was more of a feel, you know. So I tried. I, I don't read the manuals. Yeah, I don't read directions <laughs> until I fuck up yeah. a lot. You know, yeah. and my, my daughter always says, did you read the directions? I said, no, I don't like to read directions. I just like to to get in there and, oops, yeah, get in there and play with stuff. Well, that's how you even learned engineering. Is just Well, I mean. And you learn about the. Uh, even get guitar distortion by turning up the preamp on the board. Right. You know, and that's against the rules, but it still works. Well, and that's the thing, too, is Prince taught you how to break the rules. And, and it was acceptable. Do you think some amateur or some engineers thought that he was amateur because he did things that were against the rules or mm, no I mean like this guy doesn't I mean, know anything I, about I, I I'm the one that started breaking the rules yeah. we did so you we did the song Kiss that. Warner Brothers was pissed off cuz they uh, I was really involved in it and I talked to the promotion guy I said no we're not putting that out Prince really fucked up and I went, what? Wow. <laughs> and my heart dropped to the floor. And he said, yeah, there's no bass. There's no echo. It sounds like it's a demo. And I went, oh. <laughs> and then Prince had enough power to go, well, put that out. Otherwise, I'm not giving you another one. <laughs> and they put it out. And sure enough, a year later, they're trying to sign people that sound just like that. Yeah. I mean, it's really the tasteful Innovations are made by musicians, not record companies. Well, I remember um, the management company came in when we were doing 1999, and he wanted to put out Little Red Corvette, and they said, they, you know, Kiss won't play that. He said, then they won't play it. Put well, it out. Well, he told me he wrote Little Red Corvette just so he could get on the radio. You know, it was um, pocket full of Trojans, in and out around your leg, oh, and yeah, all that, right. and they said they oh, won't play that. Oh, it was because of that Tipper Gore thing yeah. still. Is that when Frank Zappa had went in front of the Senate committee? Was that? I saw that the other day. I didn't. I just caught a piece of it. Because Frank was like, they were policing lyrics, and Frank didn't really know Prince, but he really helped stand up for artists and their lyrics, freedom of speech. Yeah, uh, well, got to break the rules to did, be new art. Did Prince ever get political at all? Did he ever like endorse a president? No. He well, was, he, remember Ronnie talked to Russia? That was kind of a political. That was when Reagan was president. I but guess in his own way it was political. Yeah. I think he had his opinions, but it wasn't, you know. Do you miss him? Yeah. Yes. You think about him often and just... I think about him and, you know, he was a good friend and he did a lot of important stuff and I miss that. Yeah. I miss uh, his sense of humor. Would you go to the children's hospitals with him and play? He would play music? I didn't go. No. Well, you weren't on tour then, obviously, with him. because no. He would do that a lot and a lot of charitable things. He did a lot, yeah. A lot of stuff behind the scenes that you would never know. You know, his, his foundation, the PRN, still supports that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is excellent. I appreciate you guys coming in so much. Let's get those plane tickets. We're going to let Peggy go see Paisley Park. She's never been Can we been do there. it in, in spring? <laughs> <laughs> Better wait till the snow's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not a snow girl. 
I've never been. I there. come I was, from the desert. <laughs> yeah. You're a cowgirl. Well, yeah, you know, and then, and then I, when I tried to learn, that's the way I tore my ligaments in my knee was skiing. And I said, you know what? I don't understand the stuff to walk on. And then you expect me to put boards on my feet and go down a hill or a mountain? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get snow. I mean, I saw snow when I was 30 for the first You're lucky. time. So, yeah. Last question, one on this, because this show's about Sunset and the artists and the rooms. What's a memory you have here of Sunset Sound? Working with Prince, any other artists? About Sunset? Yeah. What's the fir- maybe it's the first time or that uh, story you said about oh, you playing th- guitar? One time I was working in Studio 3, and um, James Brown was doing a photo shoot in Studio 2. And for some reason, he went to our bathroom and started to get ready. It's a private bathroom in Studio yeah, 3. Yeah, yeah. So, Coke, my assistant engineer, Coke Johnson. Wow. I just he walked in, and there's James Brown. <laughs> and he goes, David. I, can't. I went and looked, and sure enough, sure enough, he's right there. And he, he looks at us, and he goes, how do you feel? <laughs> <laughs> and we both were, like, locked in place, and we went, we blew it. We should have said, I feel good. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to Coco quite often. He's down in Texas. Yeah. He's got a great bunch of stories. I mean, he worked with Bob Dylan here, Prince, obviously, so many artists. Uh, did Coke assist you ever, or did you work with together? I worked with Coke. thought he had a great name for the 80s, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. He looks like he's doing great in Texas. Yeah. I think he, he, well, he still nice does guy. engineering. He's, he's got nice a bunch guy. of sports cars. Yeah, must be doing fairly well. TR6s. Was Prince in the room then when you were tracking? No, it was no a I don't know what we were working on. but Prince would probably flipped out if anyone was in his bathroom. Yeah, I don't think he would have liked it, especially James Brown. Well, he, he didn't like, that's why he liked Studio 3, is because it was enclosed and, you know, yeah, nobody went back there. Big lounge, uh, private bathroom. Yeah. yeah, he didn't have to come out. He was the king of the castle. He didn't play as much basketball when he worked in 3 as when he worked in 2. Because, you know, you'd walk out of two and there was the basketball court. So, What's a memory that stands out from your nearly decade of work here at Sunset Sound? One day that you came in that stands out out of all the rest. Well, aside from Prince, that was wonderful. I, there was a there was a there an incident in here. I was working with Elton John. and um, What room? Two? This one. Oh, one. And it was um, Stevie Wonder was coming in. And he had an assistant, obviously, and uh, he did a harmonica part on how come, I guess that's why they call this the blues. And he wanted to punch in. And they looked at me to punch in, and everybody, you could hear the whole room like, it was Stevie Wonder, right? So I locked in, he had a signal that he would do. You know, and I just locked into him, and I made the punch. And that was when the machines—you didn't know if you made the punch because yeah. it would, you know, you had that little bit of. Couldn't a, tell if there was a yeah. gap. So we played it back, and it was like, oh, and you could see the whole room kind of just. Oh, it was funny, and I can still hear my punch. I was so locked into <laughs> that, I can still hear it when I listen to that record. Did you work with Elton on two albums? Yeah. He mentioned you in his book. I know. You knew that. Yeah. Uh, Elton John. Did you ever work with Elton John here or see no. him around? He was so talented. He is so talented. 
Well, that's a roundtable. I appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. This will be available shortly. And if you have hit songs, you need a producer. <laughs> Rivkin underscore David. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>